Hello, hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I have a special program for you today. On February 23rd, two months and one week ago, I introduced to you the six pillars of well-being, a compilation of my life's work on wellness. This program breaks down the six essential elements of living a balanced, healthy, and fulfilling life. We spoke about the first pillar, our physical reality. On the 23rd of February, we covered the second pillar, our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and self-talk on March 9th. On March 23rd, we focused on the third pillar, social conditioning, the influences of our society, community, family which we may may not be aware of. The fourth pillar, the unconscious beliefs we dealt with on April 4th. And on April 20th, we started the biggest stretch of our journey, our conscious attitudes and character traits, which may help or stay on our way to leading a healthy, good quality life. And out of 13 challenges within this fifth pillar, I covered so far two, guilt and judgment. It would be appropriate to continue today with the fifth pillar uh, and speak about jealousy and gratitude and so on. But at the end of at least last two pillars that we spoke of, I gave you assignments. And I think those of you who decided to be not only listeners, but participants in the program need little more time to practice. In truth, uh, though the full program consists of 12 videos, and I say that it requires 12 weeks to practice, many people who actually have my program and downloaded, downloaded it from uh, my website, many people found that 12 weeks is, was a good introduction. And after these 12 weeks, they realized that now they needed to go for 36 weeks, which means each video to be watched and practiced for three more weeks. And in truth, transforming yourself is a slow and gentle process. The good news is, as you're working on yourself, you notice the positive changes as you go. So I will continue the six pillars two weeks from now. But today, I decided to do something else. Uh, but first, let me remind you that I am available to take calls. You can call me during the show if you have some comments or questions. If you don't reach me today, you can, can also send me an email. My email is peter18resnik at gmail.com. And the number to call here at PRN is 888-874-4888. Again. 888-874-4888. Today, I want to introduce to you yet another tool that I utilize in my work. I, have, I gave you a short introduction to it during my very first show that I had last year. This tool is based on our understanding and the ability to utilize the meaning of the form. Let me explain to you what I mean, those who did not hear my introduction. Imagine you are in New York City or some other city, but in New York. 
uh, because of the example I want to give you. You need to get to some place and you don't want to take a subway. With your eyes, you are searching for a moving vehicle of a yellow color. The moving vehicle of a yellow color is only an image or a form which tells you the meaning behind the form. And the meaning, of course, is this is a taxi, which for a certain fee will take you where you want to go. The, uh, the same happened uh, pretty much with our ancestors when they would go for a hunt to get food for their family. When they saw or even heard, let's say, a roar uh, of some animal, you and I call this animal a lion. They did not say to themselves, mm, here comes my dinner. No, they ran away knowing that if they didn't, they could become dinner. And they would go and look for some appropriate animal to hunt on. The form, whether it was the appearance of the lion or even the sound, informed them about the meaning of that form. And that was something like, uh, it's a powerful, vicious creature, and I have no chance. Of course, they didn't think about it in English or in such an elaborate language. But they were aware that that form is not so good for them. And as civilizations evolved and people began to store and share their experiences and knowledge, uh, so did the science of understanding of the different meanings that stood behind the forms that surrounded them. That's how we evolved as humanity. And that's how human morphology came into being. The word morphology consists of two words. Uh, they come from Greek language. The word uh, form and the word um, which, which uh, says means morpho. Morpho means form. And logos means uh, meaning. Morphology is meaning of the form. And human morphology or face reading, as we commonly use it, is the meaning behind the human form. I learned human morphology about 30 years ago, a little more. But before that, I was a therapist for at least 12 or 13 years. And any therapist know it takes at least a couple of weeks, if not months, to really get to know a new person, uh, what makes them tick, as they say. But once I learned human morphology, really it takes seconds. Once a person walks in, you read it all from the face. Uh, by the way, uh, this body of knowledge is also taught in India uh, in the Ayurvedic traditional medical system. And it's also taught in China. They have their own system. And in most European medical and nursing schools, it's taught now, but not the Chinese or the Indian system, but the Western system. It's not that known in the United States. I will spend this whole hour introducing the subject to you. Actually, I wrote a book about it titled Face Reading Secrets for Successful Relationships. It's sold on Amazon. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, frankly, I'm not certain how this talk will go and how much can we can we accomplish. Uh, simply because face reading is a very visual subject. 
in the last 25 years I have been teaching this uh, subject. I, I've been teaching at least two courses a year, lasting 12 weeks each, and gave more than a couple of hundred uh, lectures on the subject. But was was always uh, meeting people in person uh, or on Skype, where I could see people. Uh, so I will do my best now describing to you the forms and shapes as I talk about them. And you will have to use your imagination and memory because you certainly know people who look the way I describe them. We'll see what happens. Anyway, uh, by the way, I have two programs uh, that I developed and I have them on my website, face reading uh, for successful relationships and facing face reading for successful business. Uh, uh, whatever I cover in this show today, I will post on YouTube. Uh, it will be, of course, on the uh, one or two videos out of nine of the whole program that I have. But uh, if you are interested in just seeing the illustration uh, of what I'm saying today during this show, you don't need to buy the whole program. All we need is really just this illustration. I will post uh, a video or a couple of videos on my YouTube channel. You can just go uh, Dr. Peter Resnick, R-E-Z-N-I-K, remember not CK, and you will see I, I will post. It will be the latest posting. I, there, I have there over, over 100, or I think over 110 videos. But the last one will be uh, this introduction that I'm giving you now, and possibly will work on one of the temperaments. But if you get interested in uh, learning the whole skill on your own, if you want to to get all nine uh, videos, uh, then you can go on my YouTube, go under uh, offerings, then all products, and at the price of a hamburger, <laughs> you can buy uh, the whole program. Anyway, let's start now uh, with the introduction. The underlying principles of human morphology. They're pretty much the same principles that they are that are the foundation of major old spiritual traditions. Those spoken in different languages, they postulate the same idea, that the inner and the outer, the appearance and the meaning behind the appearance, the macro and the micro, the form and the function, are mirror images of each other. This first principle applied to the science of human morphology. So it's very simple. It's called the mirror principle. The mirror principle states that our inner characteristics are mirrored in the outer form. Since we are born with different physical features, the age-old question of nature versus nurture is answered decisively by human morphologists. Predominantly, it's nature. We come into this world with certain physical characteristics, which embody a particular temperamental and energetic type. Each temperament has its strengths and its challenges. And one of the main goals of our life journey 
is to live the best life possible through this particular temperament. That is to become the best of oneself, not the best of someone's idea of what we should become, not someone's expectations, familial tradition, societal fashion, but the best of ourselves. Not only is our inner life embodied in our physical form, our form, that is the body, acts in the physical environment, creating a greater outer environment, the world around us, which is a further reflection of our inner life. That is all the deforestation and ozone layer depletion, all this. It's still a reflection of us. Uh, here are a few examples of the reciprocal relationship between the form and the meaning of the form, or let's call it function. The function of seeing is embodied in the form of the eyes. The function of breathing is embodied in the form of our respiratory system. The function of uh, procreation is embodied in our reproductive system, and the function of moving is embodied in our legs. legs. At the same time, the quality, now we go the, the other way, not uh, the meaning that is embodied in the form, but the form that reflects the meaning. The meaning or the quality of keeping things to yourself, of not sharing with what's inside is embodied in a form of a person having tight lips. The quality of physical force is embodied in a powerful lower jaw. You probably noticed it without being a morphologist. And the quality of suspiciousness is embodied in squinted eyes. This principle of the inner and the outer being mirror images of each other is also reflected in the second principle of human morphology, which is called the principle of reciprocity. This principle postulates that any change in the inner life that is the quality, is reflected in the change in the physical life, physical form, the body. And any change in the body is reflected in the changes on a person's character or our inner life. This means that not only our appearance changes as we evolve and grow intellectually, emotionally, but our mental and emotional Capacities are affected by the changes in our physical appearance. The greater the physical change, the more our inner life changes. The more superficial the physical change, the less our inner life is affected. Changing the way, for example, we wear our hair for, uh, or what we put on, like our dress or, or shoes, a shirt, pants, or the way we walk does impact us, but not much, not nearly as much as having plastic surgery. At times having plastic surgery may have some significant negative changes on our personality. It can also have great benefit benefits on our inner life if it's done with knowledge. The effect depends on what specific physical changes are made and what functions or what qualities are represented through by this, uh, these changes. 
let me let me tell you a little story actually uh, i remember seeing a female client um, in my book i call her miriam who was quite eager to get married um, miriam was from a religious community at 28 years old and by the standards of her community she was way overdue for marriage finally one day she told me about meeting a wonderful guy who was everything she wanted in a man. He was strong, both physically and his spiritual practice. He was handsome, honest, caring. He wanted many children. Clearly, you know, for her, he was Mr. Right. After a couple of months of dating, Miriam concluded that he was the man sent from heaven. And indeed, they started talking about marriage. There was one little problem though, Mr. Wright had a huge nose with a bump in the middle. Now, by morphological standards, it could not be better. Uh, that bump and, and the big nose with, with the bump reflects emotionality and sensitivity. Uh, the qualities Miriam wished a man had uh, in the first place, but Miriam was not happy with the nose. And I am telling you, I spoke to her two or three times each time I saw her. She was getting annoyed. Uh, but then one time she came and she was very happy. And she said she shared with her Mr. Wright uh, her reservations. And he was so wonderful, she said. He agreed that his nose was always kind of making him feel not so good. And it wasn't his best. Uh, most attractive feature and if it was really important to her he would do plastic surgery to correct the problem miriam was absolutely excited and was not interested in listening to my warnings so they decided to get married after he recovers from this little procedure and as i heard about the surgery really uh i that it was already scheduled uh, I, I said it may be very harmful. And again, uh, she they went through the surgery and the surgery, as Miriam told me, was a success. The big nose was no longer as big. You know, they pull it here, they push it there. I don't know how they do it. In fact, the tip of the nose because started pull, it was pulled up and it was quite a short nose suddenly from a big nose. I don't know how they do this magic. And as, as we know, as I knew, that's not a good sign. Uh, the, the, the sign of a short nose with a tip up is a sign of impatience and propensity for being harsh and critical. Uh, after a couple of weeks of discomfort and bandages, you know, Mr. Wright completely recovered and they moved on with their plans. And now, Soon after Miriam told me, maybe a couple of more sessions, she was still dealing with her issues, issues with her parents and a number of issues. But then she told me she noticed some strange things that she did not notice before. That Mr. Wright was impatient, snappy, progressively more and more critical. Uh, I, you know, it wasn't inappropriate for me to say, I told you so. First of all, I did not know for sure how the surgery will come out. And I didn't know that they will make the nose as short and pull it as up. Anyway, at some point, uh, 
it became unbearable for Miriam to be in such a relationship and the beautiful dream of happily ever after became a heartbreaking story of saying goodbye. So what's the moral of this story? Uh, be careful what you wish for uh, when you be, make little changes in your morphology. You have to be very careful. Usually, you know, since you are living your life as a reflection of your inner qualities, the best is not to change anything because every quality that you have, what we call challenging or negative, is there for you to work on and to become the best of yourself and to transform it into the opposite. Uh, and some changes, of course, are positive and health can help a person move from one emotional place to another. Uh, for example, a hair between the eyebrows is a bridge between the intellectual, morphologically, and social, emotional zones. It is a physical embodiment of a person's tendency to intellectualize if they have, uh, you know, hair grow, like your, and they call it probably unibrows, right? So there is no space between two eyebrows. So shaving off the hair between the eyebrows helps a person to connect with how they really feel. Now, but if you do that, you have to know that you may suddenly become super emotional. Don't think that something is wrong with you. It's just you made uh, an excess. You connected your feelings with your intellect and you suddenly stopped intellectualizing, but you permitted yourself to feel. It sounds magical, but if you observe this in life, you will notice it's very much true. Another example, uh, a person who has overly big canine teeth, that would be it would be wise to them to slightly shave them off. Uh, you know, you go to a dentist and tell them to shave off canine teeth because large canine teeth um, give a potential partner, uh, particularly if it's a woman who has these big teeth, um, the unconscious message, I want to devour you. Now it's enough, okay, for introduction. We, we move on to the meat. Uh, we start with where it comes from. Uh, I think that uh, Billy, I mentioned to the original, the Egyptian body of the science of human morphology, and and it originated way, way uh, more than three thousand years ago. Um, the original body focused only on four temperaments, which are embodied in our profiles. As the Egyptians observed human behavior, they became aware that people with similar head and body shapes behaved similarly. I don't think it should be surprising. You know, if you think about a horse that is heavy set, short horse with furry legs, you don't think it's a stallion that will run on competitions, on the races, right? And if you see a tall, uh, long-legged horse, that's a racing horse. So the appearance tells you about the function of how these creatures operate. So the same thing with humans. So they had similar ways of uh, people with, with this in four, four groups behaved similarly. They 
responded similarly to the same to same medical uh, intervention. Uh, preferred similar kinds of food. They felt similarly in the same climate. They were similar in every aspect of their being. So Egyptians categorized their all human beings as belonging to one of four body types or four temperaments, each corresponding to a particular energy, uh, type of energy and type of build, body build. These days we call them a bilious and symbolically the bilious is represented as a human. Then the nervous symbolically represented by an eagle. And later in our talk, you will understand why, or what's the significance between these animals. A sanguine symbolically uh, embodied by a lion and lymphatic symbolically embodied by um, or represented by an ox or a bull. Since people are born with distinctly different head and body shapes, uh, and because it was determined that each of those characteristics represented unique qualities of their way of being, human morphologists in Egypt answered the question of nature versus nurture by decisively saying that primarily it is nature. People are born with characteristics. Uh, just like we know people are born with certain talents, with certain inclinations. Why I cannot keep a tune and Mozart was composing at the age of four. Uh, some six to 900 years after human morphology became a popular body of knowledge throughout Egypt and in the Middle East, the science arrived to Greece. The Greeks noticed that the temperamental types embodied in the head and body shapes that were described by Egyptians did not account for all behaviors or all behaviors of human beings. And so they began additional studies of human form. So the Greeks started paying attention, not just to the shape of the head and body type, which was determined by looking at the person's profile and, and the body, but also at the soft part of human morphology. The, the face. The term soft is used because the face, the shape of the face, the musculature of the face, and some features change every five to seven years to greater or lesser degree. In some circumstances, if a physical emotional trauma has taken place, uh, or as a result of some inner work that was done, these changes occur within a short period of time. And you probably have seen some friends you haven't seen for a couple of years and say, God, this person really changed. And they did. So the Greeks and the Romans later understood that though we are born with a particular temperamental slash profile and body type, it accounts, they say, approximately for 90 to 95% of who we are. Our face, its shape, and the features of the shape account for the remaining five to 10%. And that's who we become as we're growing up. The Greeks uh, have a word for, for face and it's persona, which literally means the mask. We develop this mask or slash personality in response to demands 
to the demands and pressure put on us by our parents and educators. Uh, the ancestors, uh, our, our ancestors, which which are really um, Greeks and Romans and the Egyptians, or all these people from whom we inherited this wealth, uh, also observed that all shapes of faces, regardless of face, uh, of race um, and and the place of birth or age or gender, fall fell in four in twelve actually twelve geometrical shapes, and they gave them the names: Earth, uh, Saturn, Uranus, Mercury, Long, Mercury, Mars, Pluto, Sun, Venus, Jupiter, Moon, Neptune. The characteristics of some faces. Uh, slash personalities were linked with the characteristics of specific profiles. Right? So remember, there is a certain temperament and people have certain faces that are close, behave close to the temperament, but have few unique features. The grouping was based on the similarities in energy levels and exertion of will and form of intelligence, the relationship to time and space, and the organization of thought and action. Even how people presented themselves to the world, their uh, personas were unique. So Earth, Saturn, and Uranus were grouped together as belonging to a bilious temperament. A Mercury and long Mercury, and I will show you the, the shapes, were combined and attributed to the nervous temperament. Pluto, Mars, Sun, and Venus became part of the sanguine temperament, and Jupiter, Moon, and Neptune, lymphatic temperament. So uh, the Greeks also observed that as people are growing up, if they are growing up, in the environment that is conducive for them being just themselves. Uh, no pressure to accommodate anyone. Uh, so the children usually grew into adults having the face belonging to the particular temperament that I mentioned. But if there was pressure uh, to produce, to, to become somebody else, uh, to accommodate one of the parents, I will give you a little later an example. Then the face actually can belong to a different temperament because the pep, it's, that's to satisfy the demands of the, of the parents. So let us now move on to actually real temperaments. You begin to study temperaments uh, please bear in mind that when I talk about temperaments, I talk about pure types. Uh, at first, when you think about pure, pure type, you will say, well, it sounds like somebody like I know, but, but there are features that are not like that person. So does it mean morphology is not right? No, because very few temperaments uh, are pure types. Again, a little late, I will tell you how to recognize not pure types. But how, let's first think of how you, like I told you all these names and 
four temperaments and, and faces, how do you actually determine who is who? Here is how, now you can write it down or memorize. Um, there are three features you're looking at in order to identify one's temperament accurately. You're looking first, remember temperaments you look uh, at um, when you ask a person to show you their profile. Let them completely turn their body and show you left profile because left is associated with, with the past. Uh, a right is associated with the present and potential for the future. As you know, um, our two sides are quite different. So you always, the same thing if you want to take a picture of yourself, you take a picture not by simply sitting straight, but then turning your head. No, you turn the whole body and show a person your body in the profile, not only the head. So you're looking at the forehead, the chin, and the corner of the jaw. Okay, because why? Because we know that the, each feature has different meaning. For example, the forehead is intellectual zone. The space between the um, forehead and the bridge of the nose, that's intellectual zone. The space between the bridge of the nose and under the nose, it's social emotional zone. And the space between, the, uh, between under the nose and the chin is physical material zone. So a person actually can maybe, uh, let's say, with a have a forehead of one temperament and the chin of a different temperament. So the forehead actually is representing the intellect. The chin represents the force, the energy with which a person moves in life, the intensity. The corner of the jaw, remember what we are looking at, the forehead, the chin, and the corner of the jaw. The corner of the jaw represents, uh, how to say, the duration of that force that the chin produced. Okay? Remember what I just said. Uh, the, the forehead is the... Um, intellect, the chin is the force with which a person acts, and the, uh, the corner of the jaw is the temperament, uh, excuse me, is the, the, in the uh, duration with which this force is propelled. So a person, let's say, like I give you an example, a bilious uh, is a willful and organized and meticulous, and let a nervous um, even though they're intellectually organized and powerful, physically they're not enduring. So a person may be a bilious in the forehead, but the corner of the jaw may be nervous. So they may have great ideas, but when it comes to acting, they don't have the endurance. So that's how you will recognize and don't demand from them to implement their ideas. You will find somebody else to implement those ideas. Or if you're a parent, you know what your child is capable of. You're not demanding, you're not forcing them to, let's say, work for many hours. 
but you offer them something where they can see quick results and they, they work for short periods of time. Okay, so you will remember now. So let's start now with the temperaments. The first temperament we cover is a bilious temperament. The bilious is what we call uh, a builder of the world. They are powerful, they are doers, they have will, reason, and order. Let me tell you how a bilious looks. Um, just imagine a, a, a person now looking in the profile, and or you can think about your relative. The forehead of a bilious is rounded and or, and or maybe pouched forward. It can be also flat, but straight. The corner of the jaw goes from the ear a little bit down, not much, and then goes diagonally to the chin. The chin is not protruding too far, but does protrude a little. And it looks like you could make a straight line between the forehead and the chin. That's, that's a bilious temperament. That's a bilious body type. They're usually stucky, strong, uh, organized body. Uh, they're not very tall, not very short. Um, the shape of the back of the head is roundish. And the color of their skin, usually if it's Caucasian person, is brownish. That is not brown brown, but it's brownish. It has brown tinge where there are a reddish tinge. You've seen people who even their face is red, their chest is red. That's different. That's called the sanguine body type. But the bilious is brownish skin. The body of a typical bilious person is strong and not particularly large. That's important to, to remember. It's solid and wiry. Here are some people you know from history who were Napoleon, who were, uh, who were bilious. Like I'm, I'm thinking of Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, if anybody knows his, uh, his face. Or think of Mahatma Gandhi, remember roundish forehead. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, by the way, Adolf Hitler, Richard Nixon, Oprah Winfrey has round his forehead. Remember, the chin is also on the level of the forehead. Rudy Giuliani, uh, Pope John II, uh, George Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, Whoopi Goldberg, Warren Buffett, think about who else? Mike Tyson, remember you, what a powerful fighter he is? Uh, maybe he was, maybe I don't know if he's fighting now. Remember, non-stop, that's typical, that's pure bilious. And if you examine, you download and you go on whatever, it's um, what Google Images and look at profile pictures. Bruce Willis, yeah, Bruce Willis. You will see Bruce Willis and uh, Mike Tyson uh, have absolutely the same profile. And uh, Whoopi Goldberg too. So these are people who are bilious. So what are their, their features? Um, people with a bilious temperament know themselves usually from childhood as, as kids who are nonstop, no step uh, uh, rest required. 
they start in the morning and just don't don't stop. They need very little sleep. In fact, I remember a story actually. I saw it. This was uh, a while ago, like eight years ago, I think, or nine years ago. A woman came to see me and um, was crying, actually, saying, "I cannot really deal with it. My child is so difficult." And she happened to be, I immediately saw lymphatic temperament, which means lymphatic temperament, people with lymphatic temperament and body type, they're kind of heavy set. They need eight hours of sleep or more. Uh, they're a little slow rhythm. And now imagine uh, she and her husband have this, both of them are lymphatic, in fact, and they have this child who is a pure bilious. And she said that they have a child who is, hyper and and doesn't stop and that they try to put him to sleep he's six years old and he refuses and there are fights every night and she cannot take it so and in fact she took him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist prescribed i believe uh, um, ritalin and i told as i looked at the picture i knew that the conflict and and i told her consider the possibility that you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I cannot uh, say, do not do it. I can just tell you what I would do if it was my child. So I do not believe the child needs uh, Ritalin. He just has a different pace of life. First, don't try to put him to sleep at nine o'clock. That's not for him. It's for you. It's good for you. Ask him to stay as long as he wants in his room not to make noise and when he is ready to put away his toys and go to sleep that's it and uh, i taught her also some techniques that she would teach her son uh, of focusing focusing on one thing at the time guess what happened within a couple of weeks he was a perfect child no problem at all he knew exactly when he would get tired and would go to sleep no conflicts at all and I keep in touch with these people. Now, this is a young, I think he's 14 years old now, very healthy, very well-adjusted and balanced kid. Really a wonderful kid. So uh, what else about um, bilious, what we know, is that bilious are very logical. Things must make sense to them. Uh, if things don't make sense, you can expect them to put up a fight. Most times they respond to a suggestion by doing the opposite. That's why that woman struggles so much because he knew, the boy knew exactly what he needs. But uh, in general, bilious temperament, uh, usually they, they tend to, to argue. They, they have to come up with some uh, challenge. They do it as children and they do it as adults as well. It may be only uh one time when bilious temperament are not logical most of the time they are but when it comes to uh arguing they have to be right so they push their ideas but they have tremendous energy and will uh, the minds of bilious are very active always geared towards solving problems and overcoming challenges think of how someone you know in your life uh, and you will think that you, you may remember how their profile looks around this flat, straight forehead, the chin on the level of the forehead. 
bilious uh, positive pessimist, we call it. They notice problems wherever they go. But these problems don't scare them. But the challenge usually fuels their will to overcome. With no challenges to overcome, billiards get depressed. So they need challenges. That's why they are always in the pursuit of getting yet another thing done, another accomplishment under their belt, another battle won. That is why the pure billiards are called the builders of the world, as I told you from the beginning. They use their incredible intellectual capacity to address the challenges while being objective and, and logical. Uh, after a clear vision of when and how, then they use their will to accomplish, to conquer, to destroy, to learn, to build, to unlearn, to make peace, to wage war. Whatever they choose to do, they're unstoppable. You can rely on them at work and at play, and they do it all without shortcuts and without complaint. Billions are natural leaders. They're often, often admired when their bosses, admired but not necessarily loved by people who work for them because, because they, nobody can keep, keep up with them, but they lack very often empathy. Uh, to understand that not everybody can do as much as they can do. Um, think about uh, some people, like Rudy Giuliani, for example. Remember, he was a, a mayor of New York. Like him or not, he cleaned up the city. It, the city was horrific, in horrific, horrific shape. I remember it. He implemented most programs he wanted. He pushed himself and others hard most of the time uh, and while pursuing his agendas he offended a lot of people not being, was so sensitive uh, fought with leaders uh, did whatever he wanted and accomplished a lot and that's why a lot of people were actually happily uh, surprised when he showed some kind of uh, human uh, emotion, compassion when, when September 11 happened. Uh, but Rudy Giuliani is a typical bilious, non-stop, do it, go on, or go on, and, and overcome challenges. Uh, bilious in, in politics, uh, if, if they're not challenged, they can become dictators. Uh, Hitler was one of the bilious temperaments. But I want to tell you, I actually did a comparison of uh, of Mahatma Gandhi and Adolf Hitler, because temperamentally they are very similar, both billions. We slightly tilted forehead, but that's not, not too much. Uh, both charismatic speakers, both powerful, nonstop. So beyond morphology, that's why I have to say yes, morphology is important, but beyond morphology is choices that people make. And one chose uh, self-reliance and self-respect and a, res a respect of others like Gandhi and the other one blame and look what happened. So, uh, but another example of two bilious temperaments uh, is Na uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and Mikhail Gorbachev. Napoleon used his unstoppable energy to build an empire. 
and Gorbachev used his energy to to dismantle an empire because he felt it was right. So billiards are long distance runners in every aspect. They have non-stoppable energy. Uh, they're literally marathon runners. Uh, and uh, among marathon runners, you will find a lot of billiards body types. They're workaholics. Uh, they will like energize the bunnies non-stop. They're not afraid of taking long-term projects. And they're not afraid of writing novels like Leo Tolstoy wrote, you know, War and Peace and huge novels. And of course, he was pure billiard. They are the ones who have ideas to building bridges, uh, building fortunes. And in fact, they don't. Like, look, Warren Buffett is a pure billiard. But they don't need uh, to show off their wealth. They're just happy to have whatever they have. A couple of words of a diet. So you're getting a, a, an image of a bilious by now. A good diet for bilious is one that includes calcium, uh, unsaturated fatty, fatty acids, vitamin E, small amounts of meat, small chicken, fish, a lot of fresh and cooked vegetables. A small amount of meat will help them to build muscles, uh, which are necessary for their need to act. They do not need a lot of sleep. Uh, four or five hours for them is just fine. Air is more important for them than food. They can eat as a lot. As long as they're on fresh air, they will burn it out because they're constantly in motion. Uh, and calcium, which bilious needs, can be found in salmon and in almonds, in dairy products and tofu, green leafy vegetables. Uh, but, but it's important to know if with a bilious temperament, if you have a child who is a bilious, they need oxygen. Hypoxygenation is very good for bilious. Their food is digested quickly. They uh, have a very short digestive tract. And if they get sick, they recover quickly. They, most of the time, they don't even uh, lie down. Like, like, let's say if they have a cold, they, stand, they, they go through this cold on their feet. Uh, they have strong immune system. The main spiritual challenge of the bilious lies in connecting with the world, not through what they have in abundance, uh, intelligence of the mind, logic, reason, and understanding, but through what they're often not in touch with, the intelligence of the heart, empathy, compassion, love. That is for them something to work on. Uh, I'm thinking now what I want, where I want to go with you today. Uh, we have still to cover three temperaments, uh, sanguine, nervous, and lymphatic. And each of them, you see how much I told you about the bilious, 
and they, they eat a different kind of food. When you hear about sanguine, lymphatic, and nervous, each of them has a very different need, the different kind of uh, nutrients that they require. So again, I told you already a number of occasions. So when people say, even specialists, nutritionists say to you, uh, this food is good for you, or, and this is not so good. This, if you take in high doses, it will strengthen your immune system. No, you have to know what body type you are. What is good for one person is not so good for another. Just like I give you an, an idea. If a person is, for most temperaments, three at least, it's good to drink a lot of water, but not for lymphatic temperament because they hold on to water. They absorb water. If a lymphatic body type, and that is 25% population from New York City, which is surrounded by water, would move to Arizona, you know that they would, a person who is 50 pounds overweight would automatically lose 10, 15 pounds because they are filled with water. So while a bilious, uh, they, they're fine. They can drink water uh, and they can eat food. They burn it all and uh, they have no problem with it. So I just want you to know that each body type as we go is very, very different. What I will do uh, today, as I said, because I want you to have pictures to, uh, to what I, images to what I'm saying today. So I will post just for, for a week because uh, otherwise it's not a full program. I have uh, this program uh, face reading for successful relationships, um, and but it's nine nine videos. I will post video one because we covered on the kind of introduction, maybe video two, no, just video one. Uh, and you can kind of get uh, a refresher or reminder of what we covered today. And our next time, but the next time we'll be talking about six pillars of well-being, which means two weeks from now, but uh, which means four weeks from now, we'll talk about the remaining temperaments. Uh, if you are interested in actually studying seriously uh, the, and downloading to us for yourself, uh, the program Face Reading for Successful Relationships or Face Reading for Business, uh, you can actually go on my website, uh, drpeterresnik.com. In fact, if you decide to buy the program, which really is at the cost of a hamburger, you can get this uh, this week uh, discount. Um, you, you know, when you click to buy, it will offer you to put discount code and its discount code is FACE21, F-A-C-E-2-5, FACE25, because so you will get 25% discount, but just write as one word, F-A-C-E-2-5, you will get 25% discount. And as a bonus, by the way, if you want, uh, if you study the whole face reading, at the end, uh, you can take your own picture and send it to me. But you give your own analysis of your own face and your profile, and I will give you my feedback and tell you how accurate you are. Next week, uh, seven days from now, in my next show, I will have an interview with Mrs. Sarah Berkowitz, who is the author of Guided Imagery with Children, Successful Techniques to Improve School Performance and Self-Esteem. She is a counselor and educator 
and she pioneered a revolutionary approach to education using guided imagery and therapeutic storytelling. That may be interesting if no, even if you don't have little children, uh, you probably have them grandchildren or you have friends. I and uh, I know this woman from the time I studied mental imagery with my teacher. So it may be a, quite an interesting discussion. And the book I utilize actually in my practice when I work with children. So uh, I want to thank you now for being with me today. And uh, our time came to the end. And I hope to have you here next Tuesday. Thank you. Peace to all who want to live in peace.